Welcome to American Memoirs, a podcast dedicated to American history focused on the stories from those who made it. Today, we're thrilled to welcome a guest whose work has reshaped our understanding of pre-Columbian Americas and the profound impact of globalization following Columbus's voyages. Charles C. Mann, a journalist and author of pivotal works such as 1491, New Revelations of the Americas Before Columbus, and 1493, Uncovering the New World Columbus Created, who is joining us to explore the story of the founding of the Haudenosaunee, commonly known as the Iroquois Confederacy, their way of governance and life, and how it impacted the founding fathers of the United States. Charles's writing, characterized by its meticulous research and compelling narrative, challenges conventional wisdom and brings to light the complex civilizations and ecological landscapes that had ex existed in the Americas before the arrival of the Europeans. His work on the Colombian exchange, the widespread transfer of plants, animals, culture, human populations, technology, and ideas between the Americas and the old world has sparked conversations on the global impact of these exchanges and their role in shaping the world as we know it today. It's a personal honor to have him on the podcast today. Thank you so much for joining us. Well, it's my pleasure to talk with you. Cool. So the Iroquois Confederacy, uh, what, what is the origin story of them? Well, um, first I should explain what it is. And uh, I should also explain that it's, it's, and this is most important, it's here today. Um, it's uh, been a continuous existence for a, a very long time. And it's a very vital group that is, that is, that is, that is here today and uh, has plenty of people who can um, speak for them. It's originally a confederation of five different indigenous nations, um, the Mohawk, the Onondaga, the Oneida, the Cayuga, and the Seneca. Um, and they, and those are the English names uh, for them. Each of them have their own names, and each of them speak um, slightly different um, Iroquoian languages, so that uh, mm -hmm. each of them, of course, have names for the others, and so that if you really want to get into it, there's a, a whole complex um, name, naming system. Um, late, um, later on, um, during the colonial period, a sixth group, the Tuscarora, um, joined, joined them. And, uh, what's there, what's remarkable about them is, uh, from, you know, the outside point of view, like myself, I should explain that I'm not a member of them and I, I cannot speak for them. I can just tell you, you know, what I've seen yeah, sure. or learned, um, from talking with them and reading, uh, the remarkable thing, um, one of the many remarkable things, uh, about them is that they formed a government um and there's some argument about when this was but you know hundreds of years ago um that in certain ways um was a was, was struck um the europeans at the time as a model either good or bad of governance that was you know strikingly different from the way that europeans of the time had governments with kings and uh so forth and they were for many um, uh, European thinkers of the time, kind of like the shining example of another way of doing things. Um, yeah. Now, and they, of course, had their own ideas about the Europeans and so forth, and have been involved in a continuous struggle with first the British and then the French um, and then the U.S. that goes on to this very this very day in which they have insisted on their own self determination. Um, they're really, as I say, a remarkable bunch of people, and they are divided um, between um, parts of upstate New York, 
and um, Canada just across the uh, the St. Lawrence St. Lawrence River, and that that that's who they that's who they are. Although it's a tiny and inadequate summary of you know hundreds and hundreds of years of really interesting history. Yeah, definitely. Um, so the Great Law of Peace is that's the the governing structure. Yeah, it's the it's like the Constitution, if you if you like, and mm -hmm. uh, that was. Um, laid down um the the basic founding narrative is that these guys were in, in conflict for centuries um and okay. the reason it's called the great law of peace was that it was the coming together of historic enemies um and providing a way for people who really disagreed on a, on a lot of things to have a common governance and a way of resolving disputes and a way of living together um, and so it basically, um, uh, you know, there's essentially formed a, a, a series of councils and there's a whole, you know, list of things that they, that they, they do. And there's a women's council, there's councils, you know, of men and councils of women that and they have different, um, areas in which they, um, in, in, in which they, they govern. And, uh, this, a, a striking, and the striking thing for the, um, Europeans at the time was that you didn't have um, you could be you know a chief and you could be deposed you, you didn't sort of you, you know <laughs> get rid of your chief and yeah. chief's son wouldn't you know, necessarily take over it was very it was the antithesis of a you know the, the monarchy and it was and things had to be done by consensus in other words you know the 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 chief was a relatively weak Chief executive in our in, in our terms and had to get the consent of the governed to, to, to do anything and they did he didn't have the sort of formal authority that the that the king had so it was even though it wasn't a democratic system in the sense of you know voting and all of the stuff that we have it was a one that was there was much more public participation and much more need for public consent and uh, you know, Europeans of the 16th and you know, 17th and 18th century thought this was completely fascinating. And a lot of them, especially the aristocrats, thought it was terrible. <laughs> yeah, because they were, uh, you know, trying to hold on to their own power. Right, right. And so there's these, um, and I, I should say also that the Euro that the, um, the Iroquois, the Haudenosaunee, um, had to their sort of north and west, um, a group of people, the Huron or Wendat, um, who were there, um, you know, sort of traditional enemies like, you know, France and England or something like that at the time. And, mm -hmm. um, but who had a somewhat similar uh, form, form of government. And so when the Europeans encountered this sort of rich world in which there were, you know, confederations and alliances and hereditary things, you know, you know, European politics, except that the states involved, you know, if you like, were completely different than European states. You know, they weren't idiots. They thought this was really interesting. And yeah. they, what this told them about human nature and about you know how people should govern themselves it's interesting um so and i may not pronounce this correctly but uh diganawanda um there's a bunch of different first there's like a bunch of different ways that people pronounce it uh diganawanda is the way how i do but you but anyway this is the the maybe a way to do it is this is the guy whose name has come to us in sort of bastardized form is Hiawatha. Okay. That's so, a lot different than the English spelling. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So 
So who was that? We're going to okay. So he was the leading figure um, in the uh, the in in the story. He was uh, you know he was the guy who put together the uh, and there's different versions of the the story about how this was. So he was a charismatic um, figure um, with uh, super supernatural powers uh, who 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 brought it all to uh, who who was the main figure in the story of how the great law of peace was 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 constructed and. Um, so he might be, you know, this is a, I, I, I'm not sure that the Haudenosaunee themselves would be crazy about this, but he might be called the Thomas Jefferson of the, um, of, of, of the um, Haudenosaunee. He was, uh, and in the same way that, um, you know, if you, if you go down to Washington and look at uh, the, you know, the statues of, of Jefferson, and he's this sort of exalted figure. Yeah. Um, he's got the same kind of uh, resonance. Uh, or, for that, and essentially, um, you know, there's multiple different versions of the stories. But what he did was uh, bring, you know, was to say, enough, <laughs> you know, we're killing each other. We've got to um, do some do something better, right? And so, essentially, what was ushered in was, uh, like what you were saying, not necessarily a direct democracy or democracy per se, but representative uh, in a sense that. Uh, there was both, uh, you know, in, in the U.S. terms, almost like the state system kind of mm -hmm. correlated to the tribes. And then the federal government was this overarching uh, confederacy that uh, while each tribe was individually unique, they all fed into, uh, you know, a, a general form of government. Yes. And um, this, you know, sort of you know, overall similarity, sort of like similarity, looking at it from like the 30,000 foot level, um, led to a controversy that uh, uh, began, I think, in really in the 1980s and continued on for a number of decades, in which um, some historians argued that the colonists, the English colonists, you know, experience with the uh, Haudenosaunee, who are major figures, I mean, they were the, they were the, the, Biggest um, and most important um, Native nation that the people in New England, you know, New England, um, had to contend with. Uh, uh -huh. th that their experience with this um, led to the formation of the U.S. government um, in, a, in a strikingly um, similar way. And then other historians say this is all wet and this is uh, ridiculous and so forth. And it's led to quite a bitter um, argument that, to some extent, still continues today. And in some places, especially New York, um, I, I believe this is the case. School kids are required to be taught about the connection between, the, you know, the Haudenosaunee and uh, the, and particularly the Articles of Confederation, which was the predecessor to the um, actual U.S. Con uh, Constitution. Um, That's interesting. I didn't know that they were taught that. Yeah, um, I believe it was at one point it was required, and I think it still is. Um, Shoot, I should have looked this up before I came to talk to you. Anyway, just <laughs> homework for your reader, for your listeners. Yeah. <laughs> but the point is. Yeah, we'll see was, who fact checks it. Yeah, yeah. The point is that there was this big art, that there was this um, big argument. And, um, you know, people have very different uh, opinions. I'll, for what it's worth, I'll give you mine, which is that the influence was less a matter of direct copying than the presence of um, an example of people who were free um mm -hmm. 
And one of the things that you find out from you know, you know, people talking to the Europeans talking to the Haudenosaunee um, is that they regarded the Europeans as as slaves, in, in, you know, in, in a certain way. They they had to do what the king said. Um, right. They didn't have a choice in the matter, and they couldn't. If the king was a jerk, they couldn't dump the king. And the Haudenosaunee thought this was like absurd and and ridiculous. Um, and the other thing that they were appalled by was that there's a real tradition of reciprocity. If you're a member of the Haudenosaunee, you know, um, confederation, and you, you know, bad luck happens to you and your, your crops die or something like that, the society as a whole is obligated to try to take care of you. There's a real part of mutual aid, and that's part yeah. of mutual consent. We all are consent to be governed together with the implicit thing that the governance will then take care of us um you know if something happens and watch out for our interests and so this is not the case <laughs> you know and so there's various records of um native people going to england or france or what have you and seeing the beggars on the street and being appalled and thinking that this there must be something wrong with this government <laughs> <laughs> they would allow this to, to happen. And there would be these big rich people and there would be these poor people. And this seemed to them totally screwed up. Um, inhumane, really. Yeah, inhumane. Um, and uh, kind of hard to argue with them, actually. <laughs> <laughs> it is. Yeah, it's it's kind of something that we, you know, accept in uh, even modern society. Uh, oh, yeah. I, I live in Chicago and, you know, there's plenty of people who are homeless living in the streets and you see pretty frequently. Um, and, and so this you know, was, this was, um, just like something is really weird is, 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 is going on that the, um, that you have this government that you, that is clearly failing because look at the presence of all these poor people. Um, and nobody can get rid of it. Mm -hmm. uh, um, and uh, you know, you see this again and again, and this was, for Europeans at the time who believed, you know, essentially that there's the king and he was sort of supernaturally, you know, given, he was, you know, given by God the, uh, this position. And then, yeah. you know, the, the, uh, the, as a sort of representative of the whole thing. And then there's this, you know, class of people who are the aristocrats and they're literally a different sort of people. And there's this kind of chain for Europeans, this idea that we were all in it together and they were all fundamentally similar. Um, and all have in this pact of mutual aid was really shocking to to encounter. Mm -hmm. This episode is brought to you by Astropause, the AI first iOS app designed for the modern pet parent. With Astropause, caring for your furry friend's social and health well being has never been easier. Our intelligent platform provides personalized advice tracks your pet's day, and connects you with a community of pet lovers. Whether it's scheduling play dates or monitoring health trends, Astropause is your pet's new best friend. Download Astropause today and start the journey to a happier, healthier pet. So I know that, you know, we, we had touched on the fact that uh, the Iroquois Confederacy absolutely still around today, um, and uh, still predominantly, uh, some would argue the longest standing uh, representative uh, governance in in the world. Um, in 1491, mm -hmm. uh, that's kind of when they first, or just general First Nations people, 
uh, have contact with the Europeans. Um, how did that ar arrival of the Europeans on the North American content uh, or continent impact the local populations at that time? Well, um, in, a, in a whole bunch of ways. Um, you know, in the same way you can think of that if Martians landed, <laughs> you know, there would be multiple, you know, effects. If, 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 be a if, lot of problems. <laughs> and yeah, it would be quite a shock. Um, and that's, you know, how different the, 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 the Europeans um, were. They, they looked different, they acted different, they spoke differently. Um, you know, so it's one of the things that the, the two societies were, were, had really different kinds of technology. Mm -hmm. um, and each of them, you know, benefited from the others. The, 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 there's all these records of, um, of uh, Haudenosaunee people looking at European shoes, for example, and thinking like, what the hell is wrong with them? They have these clunky things, you know, instead of these super sophisticated, comfortable, um, you know, and warm moccasins, they have these, you know, horrible things that don't fit very well. Um, European <laughs> boats, like uh, these small boats, like coracles, and, you know, when you have these uh, amazingly flexible canoes and, you know, all this, this sort of stuff. So that, on the other hand, the Europeans had iron pots, knives, and uh, the iron pots are really great um, not because they cook better than than you know the ceramic um, and clay pots that they had, but because they're much less uh, breakable. Uh, mm -hmm. And so you know, if if you broke the pot, you had to then go and make a new one, which is you know a giant pain and took took time and so forth. You had an iron pot, um, you know, <laughs> it was just so much easier. And the same thing was true for knives. Um, they had you know obsidian stone knives, which are incredibly sharp, but they're brittle and um, the uh -huh. edges broke and those are steel knives you know iron and steel knives are um you know are more, more durable so these were like things that, that people wanted and there was a you know a rich trade in exchange um with that and uh, so there's european goods came in and changed people's lives in a day-to-day in -day way in the same way and and also for the colonists the native goods came in and uh you know, they started growing corn, for example, and the and so that there, lots of Europeans would come here and think those native that the, that the English colonists had gone gone weird, <laughs> you know, dressing like the natives and uh, eating their food and 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 so forth. And so that was like on one level, material culture and made right. it different. Um, they had really really different conceptions of what owning land meant. Um, they both thought about owning land, but they thought about it differently. Um, in that you had, if you were a Haudenosaunee person, you had your cornfield, but it was all, also part of, you know, this collective endeavor. Um, so, you, you know. You could that, feed other people. You, you could feed other people. You know, it was, it was part, you were, you were, it was, it was yours, but you were also implicitly understood to be contributing to the whole. Uh -huh. um, and uh, there wasn't really markets in the, this, the, the same way there, that there uh, in these basic staples. Um, you know, if, if people needed it, it was put in a collective thing and, and they, they got it. Although there was plenty of trade, it, it wasn't quite the, the same kind of thing. And they also didn't have fences. So, you you know, your land didn't have fences around it. And this is for two reasons. Part of it is you might have your cornfield, but then you also had your berry patches. You had your, um, you, you had the woods where you um, foraged and so forth. And so there's a whole blend and mix of different environments. Europeans, of course, you know, thought this is my land, and I put a little square. Um, yeah, the plot system. <laughs> and I grow my wheat in here, and then I have another little square, and I put my cows here. And it was all, you know, from their point of view, 
the Haudenosaunee system was all like this weird jumble and they didn't really own the land. Like there might be a patch of cornfield here and then berries here. And then these, these things where they really mixed crops here. It was, it was hard for them to understand that the land was really being used. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, the other, and so they would, they would let their um, animals run wild. And um, part of the reason that the Haudenosaunee liked not having fences is that the, <laughs> that the cornfield was bait for deer, right? the deer would come in mm -hmm. and you'd have breakfast um you know so it, it was it was the the lack of fences was a feature not a bug and uh so, <laughs> and, but for europeans it meant it was really hard to understand what the heck was was going on and there's a tremendous amount of collision um due to this and these europeans belief that because it wasn't ordered in the way that they understood it therefore was an occupied and therefore okay to grab mm -hmm. um, and you can imagine the uh the conflicts uh o o over this and then the final thing that i would mention there was and i'm sorry for such a long-winded answer but the oh no totally okay for this uh, is that european diseases came over here and mm -hmm. um and particularly in the 1600s and uh by a quirk of history that we can talk about if you want to um, there are very few contagious lethal diseases in the Americas, you know, before Europeans arrived. So there's none of these names that we're familiar with, you know, smallpox, measles, mumps, diphtheria, influenza, plague, cholera, you know, all those awful names that we know of just didn't exist here. And right. so Europeans came here, they followed in their train and the, and the, uh, probably the worst was smallpox. And in the 1630s, it swept into um, the uh, Haudenosaunee and uh, then happened repeatedly thereafter. And it was as if all the suffering and death that these diseases had caused in Europe and Asia and Africa over you know millennia was compressed into a few decades. And so the results were devastating. Um, and... Uh, one of the things that, that happened is just a large fraction of the Haudenosaunee died and in this awful collapse. And it made it difficult for them to defend themselves, but also neither Europeans nor the Haudenosaunee had our modern understanding of disease. I mean, now we right. know that smallpox is caused by a virus, right? It's variola major is the name. And um, we know that it's not a supernatural force. It's this little sort of, um, thing that goes in the air on droplets of your breath and then uh, you, you inhale it and, and, and so mm -hmm. forth. None of that was understood by either part. And in addition, the Haudenosaunee, like all the other Native peoples in the Americas, had no experience with contagious disease. So they didn't, you know, the Europeans had all these institutions, you know, um, quarantine and, you know, you, you put these people away and you, 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 know, right. separate, you did this and all these different ways of treating it. And for the, the, it was like this, you know, it was like an H-bomb went off and just wiped out, you know, as, you know, half of the Haudenosaunee at a, at a stroke. Um, and it was it was an awful thing. And it, it also, both of them understood disease as a manifestation of, you know, supernatural. You know, they, they thought it was like, and the Europeans thought, oh, good, God has brought these diseases to clear them away. <laughs> <laughs> Which is horrible. It's, yeah. <laughs> and, and, but, the, you know, and in a weird way, many of the Native people kind of thought 
the same thing. We must have done something wrong. And right. it was so there was a, 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 a devastating spiritual uh, part of this, too. And it's a real tribute to human resilience that they got through it and are, are still surviving to be a thorn in the side of the U.S. To this day, a thorn in the side <laughs> of New York and Ontario and Quebec and uh, U.S. and Canadian governments. Yeah, it's, uh, it, you know, we talk about the uh, community uh, components mm-hmm. of uh, society and just how uh, important the community and, and the collectivization is. Uh, if, uh, you know, the, the answer of solving or, you know, mitigating some of the effects of these diseases, quarantine and isolation, as we've kind of learned in this whole COVID uh, or post-COVID era, uh, that would have just, you know, that wouldn't have gone very well. Sure. I mean, I mean, because what you did is, you know, the, your natural human sympathy, if you don't right. know this, is when somebody's sick, you go to them and you comfort them and you, you know, you pay. Yeah, you help them out. <laughs> you help them out. And, you know, the terrible thing is that uh, with something smallpox, that means that everybody gets it. The whole village gets it. People freak out totally rationally. Um, mm-hmm. and they, they, what, what do some of them do? They flee to the next village to try to get away from it. And uh, what do they do? They bring it with them. And so yeah, things get threatened. And these were, you know, densely populated clusters of um, of, of villages. Um, you know, they were in constant communication. And so they were sort of, it sounds weird to put it this way, but like ideally suited to be um, hit by smallpox. Right. One thing that I, uh, I, I wish was... Uh, better articulated is the the passage of time and the significance of like how long things actually occur uh and in your book uh 1491 kind of made that a little bit more clear to me it's you know it's it's much more apparent uh when you read things to understand that like the time period in between when columbus landed in north america and when colonization from the Europeans started was you know 100 years and uh you know, a hundred years in context today is, you know, we're talking about pre-World War II, all of modern history that has occurred, uh, has, you can condense that modern history in that hundred year period post-World War II. Um, And so the, uh, so there's about a hundred years in between when the Europeans find North America, the diseases are kind of uh, manifesting themselves around and so what happens, you know, you can think of it this way, Columbus lands, that's 1492, as everybody knows. The first um, Spanish attempt, the first attempt by Europeans, the Spaniards, um, to make any kind of settlement on, you know, in what we now think of as the United States, um, was 1526. Um, hmm, you know, okay. way south, um, you know, just north of, uh, just north of Florida, and it fails. And there's a bunch of efforts to, you know, plot little colonies on there, um, and they, they all fail. Until um, till uh, Jamestown, which is in you know the uh, 1607 or 1608, 1609, that almost fails. 80% of the people die. Um, it, you know, it, uh, it barely. It, yeah, no, it's it's, it's <laughs> that's not the kind of success you want, right? Um, and um, and then so all these efforts fail, and the reason is that native people really aren't interested in having Europeans come and stay there. Mm-hmm. You know, happy to have them trade for a while, but then they would like them to go <laughs> and they drive them away or if they fail to take the hint to kill them. Um, right. 
what happens in about 1618 is that um, disease comes, we don't really know what it is, and um, wipes out a huge portion of coastal New England. Um, and then two years later, you know, comes the Mayflower um, and the, the, the pilgrims, and they actually are camping out on native villages um, that have been abandoned due to, um, due to disease. And right. so absent these diseases, you basically, in my view, don't have any of um, you know the sort of contemporary you know the sort of American history that we that we know. Um, they and the first I believe fifty or so um, the European towns you know British towns um, and Dutch in New England were were, were were established on the sites of villages that had been emptied by disease. And this makes sense. And the ruins, yeah. On the ruins, so to speak, and this makes sense. They've cut down, you know, they already have the cornfields there. They've cut down the trees. It's pretty easy to just move into this place that's already been prepared for you. And it's obviously a good place to live because people live there. Um, and mm -hmm. so that, you know, allows, um, you know, the Massachusetts and uh, Connecticut and, 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 you know, the southern part of Maine to be um, taken over. And then in the, in the 1630s, comes this next um, epidemic that pushes out as far as as, as New York. Mm -hmm. And that, again, opens up, you know, opens up space. And uh, I, I hope you, your uh, listeners can hear me, you know, <laughs> making air okay, quotes. The air quotations, yeah. <laughs> opens up space. I mean, because obviously, you know, if, if, if um, you were a farmer and you were sick and you couldn't farm the land, you would not mean you would not you would not regard that land as being sure. open, <laughs> so that other people could come in and take it over. You would yeah, say, it's like I just can't get to it right now. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so, um, but that was that was a distinction that was lost on uh, on well, my ancestors. My ancestors are part of this uh, group of people. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, and in that group of people, so the period of colonization in that northeastern mm -hmm. uh, area, it. Uh, spans roughly another 150 years. Something like and, that. Yeah. And so it, we go from that initial population, uh, just call it like 100. And by the time that, uh, you know, we start talking about uh, forming a different country, you're talking more so 2.5 million. So right. a well, lot of a lot of immigration, a lot of, uh, you know, high birth rate. Yeah, high birth rates, uh, just the population booming. Uh, to talk more about the motivations of those individuals at that time, um, it seems to be that generally the, the goal of people who are moving to the new world or uh, what they thought to be the new world is uh, they were looking for religious freedom, political liberty, economic opportunities. Uh, do you think that they had found those things when they um, came over? Or do you agree with that as, as their primary motivators? So I have, so I'm going to, um, I know a guy named Bob Anderson, um, okay. who, who is the he's a genealogist and he's the head of what they call the Great Migration Project, um, which is by the New England. Let's see if I got this right. Historical and Genealogical Society, which is based in Boston. It's kind of an amazing organization, and okay. this is an attempt to get as much um, biographical data as possible on every person 
who came um, to New England uh, between you know the Mayflower and 1641 when there was a break in this because there was political crisis in England they killed the king and you know this all led to Cromwell and so for a few decades there hardly anybody came so there was this time between roughly 1621 and 1641 when it's a distinct group of people and those were the people who first um, you know created you know uh, Europeans down New England um, okay. and uh, he so Bob says if he, from everything he can tell, the overwhelming majority of people who came during that great migration came for religious freedom. And that meant the freedom to practice their religion. Now, mm -hmm. that did not always mean the freedom for other people to practice other religions. <laughs> <laughs> and, but those very definitely some people um, um, believed in that. And um, they were, you know, persecuted um in england and uh and you know driven to the netherlands which they didn't like because netherland was religiously pluralistic and so they came to establish a utopia for you know their 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 point of view um we call them the puritans that was uh, they regarded that as an insult and they, they they called themselves um you know very various names like pilgrims and separatists and uh and, and so mm -hmm. forth that's what we're talking about the people with the, the pointy hats in their in our imagination <laughs> <laughs> and so the religious freedom was really important and together with it the idea that um, they could get land that um, you know land was really short in um, England and right. and so that you can get good land and you could establish this 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 perfect state and Governor Bradford uh, William Bradford the first governor of Plymouth Colony which is the first uh, colony um, he talks about all this in this actually quite a good book. It's one of the um, called Of Plymouth Plantation, um, which mm -hmm. if you're a history buff, you should very definitely read. It's very readable. Um, and uh, that, that, you know, how this was his goal. And then as time went on, it became more and more, from his point of view, soiled as just this, you know, land grab and about grubby commerce. And people started caring less about being religious and uh, becoming more like, well, Americans. <laughs> <laughs> more individualistic. Yeah, more individualistic, yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, so the intermingling of the cultures as, uh, you know, in this period where, uh, while disease has certainly had its uh, impact, the prevalence of uh, the native cultures is still much more profound than it uh, you know, from size perspective than it is uh, in, in modern day. Um, the So they kind of more or less living side by side at this point. Mm -hmm. uh, in one of your uh, writings, you kind of mentioned this concept of like voting with your feet, which I mm -hmm. found really uh, interesting. Do you want to elaborate what voting with your sure. feet kind of meant for um, these early colonists? So let me, let me so I, I should say that um, what we're talking about here is actually you know, within a certain part of, you know, American history research, controversial. Um, okay. And I, I, I am telling you, you know, what I think, but there are certainly plenty of people who think, would say they, that, that Charles Mann guy is all wet. So, you know, <laughs> so take this. So these cultures live side by side. Um, and um, there's a basic idea um, in much of sort of, American historiography, if you know what I mean, is that they actually um, were completely separate and had little impact on each other. And to me, this makes no sense at all. 
And I think right. it is also contradicted by the evidence. It makes no sense at all in the sense that, you know, you any place you go now um, where there are different ethnic groups in the United States, you see cross um, fertilization. You know, you can go to Queens and all these Asian neighborhoods, and what are they listening to? They're listening to hip hop, right? <laughs> right. And what are the what What are the um, hip hop guys eating? They're eating Chinese food, right? Um, and watching martial art movies. <laughs> so you know, <laughs> look at the Wu Tang Clan, right? <laughs> so you see, you know, people do pick up stuff, and so to the idea that they're sort of separate in this way seems odd to me, just to begin with, as a starting point. Um, and there's also, I believe, historical testimony that they, you know, while still believing themselves to be English people, were um, really not interested in being subordinate to the king and having this this sort of social classes in uh -huh. the United And that they noticed that that was the way that Native people um in the americas were they were they were you know a model of a different way way to be and plus there is all this exchange of goods they weren't you know if you're wearing native style shoes native style pants eating native food you know those people aren't as weird to you um as they might be to somebody in england and so there's right. cultural mixing and also, now to get to your point, your question finally <laughs> is, <laughs> and so there's a, a certain amount of crossing back and forth. And, um, you know, uh, one of my, uh, I come from the Bellings and one, um, one of the groups of, uh, you know, distantly related to one of the groups of uh, people on the Mayflower who is, um, and one of their first acts with their kid was to run away and go and live with the Indians because it was much more fun and much better fed. <laughs> and so you had lots and lots of people doing this. And in addition, also in conflicts, um, native people, um, you know, you know, grabbing, you know, attacking some family that had encroached on their land, killing the dad and getting the mom and the kids and bringing them. And what was noted was that there's a striking number of those Europeans who did not want to go back after they had been adopted. And right. the other way around, because they also, you know, would in during these conflicts would capture native people, those native people never wanted to stay with the Europeans. It's probably a little exaggerated, very rarely wanted to, to stay. And people like um, you know, Benjamin Franklin noticed that the traffic was basically one way. The attraction was basically one way. And right. Right. And um, so, you know, I think this is entirely rational. And at one point I asked a bunch of uh, historians, um, you know, if you were living in the 17th century and you had a choice of being, you know, living in, New, you know, the, among the pilgrims or among the Haudenosaunee, what would you choose? And they, they sort of hated that question because that's, you know, uh, judging the past by the, you know, the, pres the standards of the present and all that kind of thing. But I, my, yeah. I, my journalist license to ask them the kind of uncomfortable question. And also, and I think I did it with seven in a row and all seven of them said they would rather have lived with the Haudenosaunee. Uh, <laughs> really? Yeah. Well, the food was better um, and, more, and more of it, and you didn't have really crazy people in charge. It was sort of who would, who would, you know, you Haudenosaunee, you could not be put in stocks for not going to church on Sunday sort of thing, you know? Uh -huh. <laughs> right. Yeah, it was just kind of like, the, you know, they, they were seeking out more so you you say they're seeking out the religious freedom and they kind of almost stumbled into just freedom, freedom, freedom. yeah freedom yeah. Freedom. Like, 
Oh, it's not just like I can go and not uh, have to worship the, uh, you know, in the same way that the Anglicans want. I can go and I can live life entirely, right. uh, you know, irrespective of these laws. I don't have to right. worship anybody at all. And um, also, I can live in a community where I can have much more say about what what goes on. You know, if a Haudenosaunee leader thought that it was really time to do a raid on some enemy, the leader just couldn't order every you guys troops fall in line and, and do this. Right. You know, the leaders had to. We're invading France. <laughs> we're invading France. You have nothing to say about it. Leaders had to convince people that this was worth doing. Right. And you had the option of saying, no, this is stupid. I don't want to do this. I don't want to risk my life for, for such a pointless purpose. So um, one of the things that you got from this was that uh, Haudenosaunee leaders tended to be people who were, you know, excellent orators, who are very, very, very well-spoken. And mm -hmm. uh, because you had to be to con convince people to risk their lives for you. Um, and it also meant that, you know, it, it uh, that people didn't go, that it was much closer. You you couldn't proceed without the consent of the people that you were you you were leading. And I think this you know this is pretty intoxicating. Yeah, and the interesting you know numerical values of consent versus majority is that is like everyone had to agree. Yeah, it had to be. Yeah, it wasn't like yeah, a was, controversial like oh I got fifty one percent or right. You know, you know you, Brexit would not have you know or or this yeah majority rule the. So you know, I, I saw this um, in a very small way, um, you know, personally. Um, the uh, I, I have a sideline um, where I work with um, a museum and exhibit designer uh, who's a close friend, and uh, I, my joking description of what I do is I provide the little black marks under the pictures. You know, uh, oh, awesome. Yeah, and one of the things that he has done is uh, worked with a bunch of. Native groups and done Native American cultural centers. Okay. And um, we uh, did one for the Choctaw in Oklahoma, wonderful um, bunch of people, wonderful, in my opinion, wonderful project. And um, it's a large project. And at a certain point, the chief um, realized that not everybody was on board. Mm. And uh, he stopped the project. We didn't do anything for a year while he got consensus and got everybody on board and um and then it just moved through like lightning um so it's a it's a very different um kind of procedure and it's slower in some ways and faster in some ways and more inefficient in some you know it's just a very different yeah things definitely pros and cons to it yeah uh, you know with a simple majority you can kind of get things done faster but right. you know you have it's powerful when everybody is you know, on right. You're not, you don't have 49% dragging and kicking their feet along the way yeah. as you're trying yeah. to go some direction. So. This episode is brought to you by Astropause, the AI first iOS app designed for the modern pet parent. With Astropause, caring for your furry friend's social and health well being has never been easier. Our intelligent platform provides personalized advice, tracks your pet's day, and connects you with a community of pet lovers. Whether it's scheduling play dates or monitoring health trends, Astropause is your pet's new best friend. Download Astropause today and start the journey to a happier, healthier pet.
Uh, okay, cool. So as these cultures are uh, intermingling in this period, we also, uh, and, and I think this is also controversial uh, in the historical uh, world, but we have at the same time the um, the Enlightenment movement mm -hmm. in Europe. And so we have uh, individuals uh, like John Locke or Kant uh, who are uh, kind of uh, coming up with more or less like a European version of what is liberty, what is self-interest, things mm -hmm. like that. Um, and I know that many historians are conflicted on uh, whether or not the experiences that the colonists in North America are having are influencing this uh, this uh, tides of uh, enlightenment. Uh, what are yes. what are your thoughts on that? So, um, so this is all was brought up quite recently. There is you may. I've heard that there's a book that came out a year ago, maybe, um, maybe a little bit more, called The Dawn of Everything um, mm. by David uh, Graber and David Wingro. Really interesting book. I would urge you to read it. Not a short okay. book, really interesting. <laughs> and and <laughs> one of their big arguments is that the, you know, they take a kind of maximalist position that the European enlightenment, this thing that you're talking about, sprang directly from encounters with um, with with um, indigenous people in the northeast of the United, of North America, um, and this caused a big ruckus. And you can find lots of people saying they don't know what they're talking about, and other people saying, "Yeah, finally somebody's saying it." In this kind, this kind. <laughs> um, so uh, so I'll, so I should say I'll tell you what I think, but you should yeah. know that 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 um, there is you know clearly some of you people are going to who are would be experts in this would think that this man guide has no idea what he's talking about um so i mean it's that kind of thing um so there is very clearly european intellectuals you know, mm -hmm. you know voltaire and rousseau and you know and all these people that, that you were you were mentioning Locke and so forth were fascinated by the discovery of these people um you know who are totally different from themselves um and um, had ideas totally different from from themselves and so you find things like rousseau's first writings are these plays in which he's imagining encounters with uh, native people um oh, you know, okay lots and lots of you know the idea of a state of nature um you know which is a very important thing that you know what is natural man what is you know what would people in, in this sort of um unconstrained by history what would they do and what would they be like and uh, so forth all comes you know in part from this encounter with people who are so different from yourself who makes you realize that uh, that we we didn't have to be like we are right. uh, and so i think that the influence is 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 pretty strong now there's a big um caveat there which is you know when i go and i Go to japan and i'm you know i'm struck by all the things that i see of course i'm not understanding it very well um you know, I, you know this haze of misconception i have my own ideas i i sometimes you know see something in japan that uh exemplifies what i think anyway and i say see the japanese are doing this you know and so forth and so some of that is also going on that these people who are interested in these ideas are seizing upon things that they think are mm. going on in this and confirmation this, this, bias almost yeah confirmation bias so it's a real tangle of the influence coming in the, the this way and also people seizing on this 
to um, to explain the things that they did anyway. And it's very hard to um, di distinguish the, the 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 two. And I think a lot of the argument um, is is in a sense comes down to the silly insistence that only one of these two things is happening when I think both of them are likely to happen. So mm -hmm. Martin, um, you know, the French essayist and um, in his essays is, you know, writes about, you know, in his case, you know, encountering people from Brazil and what they think and uh, so forth. This clearly has a big impact on him because he writes about it so much um, and he writes about it in a way that makes it clear that he has a big impact. But it's also he's seeing it through his own web, um, his his own lenses, if, if if you like, and seizing upon the parts that he thinks he understands to for his ideas. So both of these things are are going on, and it's right. like cross fertilization of cultures is really important. You know? Yeah, because <laughs> it's uh, not like someone you you go in and it's like a teacher and student kind of yeah. mentality. It's two grown adults coming together and. Uh, particularly in, in those that day and age, you, know, you didn't have translator apps and things. So, right. so um, there was a, uh, kind of a, a renegade uh, French nobleman named Lahontan, L-A-H-O-N-T-A-N, and he was a baron, um, which I think is kind of a, I'm always get confused about this, but I think it's a kind of a low, <laughs> no, <but> anyway, <laughs> yeah. um, um, there, and uh, he meets the Wendat, who are the, the Huron, um, that, that's in the French part. And okay. he's um, a guy named Kandirank. Um, I think that's how you pronounce his name. And, you know, maybe I mentioned earlier that um, Native leaders tended to have to be really eloquent um, because they they had to, they ruled by persuasion rather than power, you know, than, than sort of the power of the state. Mm -hmm. And so he runs into this guy and he's blown away by his arguments about why the Europeans suck and the, and the European political system <laughs> is awful and the, the religion is dumb and, and so forth um, and why the Wendat are just you know have it so much better and uh, he writes these immensely popular books um, that where he has these 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 arguments and you know they are the equivalent um, you know of these monster bestsellers in the France of the time so there you can have then of course there's this big argument he didn't really meet anybody he made it all up and this is what he wanted to say and you know all, all this sort of stuff well, it seems pretty likely that he didn't make it all up of course he did i'm sure misinterpret parts of it and was what he wanted to say because both of these things sure were so you have multiple cases of things like this going on which is uh, i think is really fascinating and sort of shows how it is true that the enlightenment was entire, you know, and these ideas we have of liberty and so forth that come from it are all entangled with the discovery of these new people in the in, in the Americas in multiple ways. Right. And and so that kind of reaches a, a culmination with the the Boston Tea Party. Right. Um, or one where, of the, yeah, yeah. Right, exactly. I, I mentioned this in the book. You know, they, they're showing they're giving their nose thumbing to British authority, right? Right. And uh, what do they what do they do? They dress up as Indians. Right? Yeah, they're right. they're not dressed like John Locke or no, no. <laughs> Emmanuel Kant or because yeah, that's we are wild people. We are free people. We are outside the state, and we don't want to have anything to do with you. And, yeah. Uh, so the symbols of liberty, and um, and that's know, not the only time in which that happens, right? No, no, it happens all the time. I mean, 
<laughs> and you know, you see these um, things like where people are, you know, resisting the state, and there's always some clown who's dressed up like a Native American, um, and uh, you know, they, yeah. so they become, you know, you know, often against their will, these sort of international symbols of freedom from oppression, um, right. and you know, it's it's. It, it's sort of ridiculous, um, but it's also sort of true. Right. No, I think it's really cool. The uh, um, that whole component of liberty and of the uh, creation of uh, what is you know the modern democratic right. movement. It, it does start with the founding of the U.S. Uh, from yeah, a you know most modern perspectives, and so at this very strong moment, you know it's uh, kind of leading in to say that this origin of, of liberty, this origin is uh, from what we've encountered here, not necessarily what the uh, ideology is manifesting and being sent back from, from England and France. So, yeah, well, those ideologies, you know, they come from somewhere. And, mm -hmm. uh, you know, it's not the ideas that people have, you know, any ideas are not just sort of like these platonic things you're grabbing from the clouds. You know they're based on your own experience and what you've seen and what you've read right. and in that time you know the the the, from the european point of view the discovery the encounter with these very different people with very different ideas was for obvious reasons a really important um an interesting thing to think about yeah definitely and and so a after this uh, event occurs and we start of kick off the uh, Revolutionary War and the foundation of uh, what becomes the United States. Uh, I think that uh, based off of my research, the founding father who seemed to have the most interest uh, in the Iroquois and native ways seems to be Ben Franklin. And he's a complicated case because he both is interested in them. Well, Thomas Jefferson is also very, very interested. And they're both interested in them and opposed to them, you know, there and yeah, um, and Jefferson was particularly like this. Franklin was a very complicated case, and he, he was sort of such a complicated guy that almost anything you say about him is true, as, as is the opposite. Uh, <laughs> but Jefferson and those guys were very preoccupied by the fact that these 13, uh, initially 13 colonies were very different from each other, mm -hmm. and you know, they, they had been conceived as being independent from each other. and in fact, their inability to collaborate and get along had actually doomed the Articles of Confederation, which is the first attempt to bring them. They, 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 you, you had to, they had to have, a in their view, a stronger federal government because otherwise they would just fly apart. And they were very concerned that the new country not fly apart into 13 pieces, um, both because they had fought to create this new country and because they believed that only in, by being sticking together would they possibly be strong enough to fight against Britain or France or any of the you know colonial powers that would just snap them up if they, otherwise? Right. And, um, so, you know, uh, Jefferson and Washington conceived that the you know carving a country out of native lands would be the joint project, and mm -hmm. so the you know the native people, you know, Indians were like. What we would all be unified against, you know, to so yeah, interesting. So that this, they couldn't be like, oh, because this is our common enemy, I can't necessarily say that I'm influenced by them. Yeah, but, but of course you are. <laughs> you know, it's yeah, very, 
is a very contradictory um, kind of uh, relationship in which um, part, and, and indeed part of the reasons that the um, colonists were mad at the Brits was that the Brits had allied with the Haudenosaunee against the mm -hmm. French and so had taken this big area um, you know, the Ohio and uh, Pennsylvania and uh, big chunks of, uh, you know, the, the whole swath there and said, that's going to be reserved for them. Um, and so in a certain way, the... Um, it was a large plot of land. Yeah, a large plot of land. It was unquestionably occupied by the Haudenosaunee. Mm -hmm. um, and, the, uh, and, the, and a lot of the colonists said, no, we want that, that land. So that they were indeed, in a weird way, fighting the um, the Brits so that they could screw over the Haudenosaunee. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. The British seem to have much more cordial relations uh, with the native uh, populations than what the colonists ended up having. Yeah, because the Brits um, um, saw them as, you know, potential allies uh, against, you know, the, 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 the French and the colonists, you know, had these fractious um, you know, both trading and, you know, is these kind of things where you're trading with people and also maybe attacking them and they're attacking you and there's yeah. really complex um, and, and fraught re relationship. Whereas, you know, here in London, <laughs> you know, you can just uh, say, oh, well, these are our allies, they get this land. Um, and the, the colonists would say, wait a minute, wait a minute, you know, one of them killed Uncle Fred, right? <laughs> <You> know, <laughs> Yeah, well, I, I've actually seen that. Land. Land. Yeah. Right. I don't want this crappy land. Um, so that there is a anyway. It, so that yes. So on the other hand, they're tremendously influenced by them, but they also wanted to um, you know drive them out. So are you familiar with the wait, no, wait, plan wait, of wait, union? Wait, wait, yeah. Just saying though, you know, but this should not be that strange to us because only an idiot would say that. Um, U.S. culture, art culture, your your my culture has not been influenced by you know African American culture, right? You Definitely, know, yeah. school, right? Hip hop, or, you know, all you know, the 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 these things. You just go on and on and on, and you name the enormous influence that African American. Yet at the same time, um, mainstream U.S. culture has treated African Americans really badly for you know a really long time, and right. so. You can be influenced by uh, somebody and even have a love for for them, even as you're planning to screw them over. Yeah, that's such a that's such a profound thing to say. It, it is uh, almost like we have a uh, long term history of uh, like love hate and kind yeah. of <laughs> taking the cultural identities while also, um, right. you know, not acknowledging it or or not really, uh, you know putting it as part of an identity. Yeah, there's this, you know, great cultural mixing that takes um, place and is really part, you know, a big part of the history of, mm -hmm. our, of our country that exists simultaneously as we're trying to, um, you know, drive them away and pretend that they have nothing to do with us. Yeah, yeah, that's, yeah. that's good. Um, so yeah, Ben Franklin and uh, the Albany Plan of Union. Are, are you familiar with um, that, that well, meeting? No, yeah, and I, I, to tell the truth, I haven't um, looked at it re recently. So the the mm -hmm. um, I, it sounds like you have. So maybe you should. Uh, get, um, yeah. The, the more sure, I can. I can jump into it. Right away, and I, 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 
so that I don't get it like because if I explain it now, I'll get it like eighty percent right. And the problem is, I won't know what the twenty percent is. <laughs> <laughs> it's okay. So uh, the Albany Plan of Union was a meeting in Albany, uh, New York, uh, which occurred in seventeen fifty four, uh, right. and that was a, a meeting between I think it was seven or eight of the colonies, which, as you said, you know, we, we're talking about a hundred to 250 years of history that, you know, colonies mm -hmm. effectively live separately. That's the extent of the United States today. And so these are cultures that have manifested for hundreds of years that are slightly, you know, have, have uh, created differences among themselves just through I, 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 uh, it. Living. Yeah. Through living. Uh, and so uh, we have this meeting in the Albany Planning Union. This meeting is specifically between the colonists and the Iroquois. Yeah. The Iroquois Confederacy comes to this, uh, meeting and at this exact same time, so they're talking. Uh, the primary goal of this this meeting was mutual defense. Uh, so we're meeting with the Iroquois to uh, try and establish uh, mm -hmm. some uh, agreements uh, with mutual defense. At the same time, uh, Ben Franklin uh, comes out with this Albany Plan of Union, which is where the the flag with the snake with eight, you know different pieces uh comes from is basically uh well he you know it would never be said that it was influenced by the fact that the iroquois could be this confederacy of five different tribes basically what he proposes is a form of government and a form of defense is we are all different colonies but we can come together in this form of union and he creates this you know document uh, which eventually is it's it's agreed upon at this meeting, uh, but the colonists they go back to their individual colonies and they uh, more or less just everyone declines it. This is kind of silly, um, but the framework in which uh, that document is placed, there's a lot of similarities to the Articles of Confederation and later the U.S. Constitution. Yeah, um, and the the interesting um, thing about that is again that historians. Um, would argue about is the degree of that influence. You know, to some extent, you know, a federation. I mean, there's a lot of examples of a federation. So sure. nearly like as a federation, you know, Spain um, as a government is a federation of you know Aragon and Navarre and Castile and you know these different different regions. Um, just to take you know a, a, a single example, Fr uh, France is a little bit like that too, where you know Burgundy and so forth used to be separate countries, and uh, they're, 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 we're we're federated. Um, and this is also an attempt to cast something in ways that the you know at least they hope that the Iroquois, you know, Haudenosaunee would go along with, because mm. the Haudenosaunee is this major military power, and by themselves they are more uh, military power than any single colony right uh, and uh that's interesting you know, yeah so tensions are and at that time tensions are ratcheting up with france uh mm -hmm. and you remember france and england have been fighting fighting forever and eventually you get um not long after that um the the seven years war you know the french and indian war as it's called which is this global um conflict which is kind of set off in um in in north north america and goes as far away as the Philippines and uh, and so forth. So you're you have to see this in this context of um, you know war clouds are you know they're, they're pretty, <laughs> yeah are allied with the Huron or Wendat, and that makes them even though there's fewer of them than 
any um, the, makes them quite powerful if the Brits, meaning the colonies, can ally with the Haudenosaunee. That's an effective um, counterforce. But to make that happen, they actually have to ally with them. And to do mm -hmm. that, to ally with them, they would actually have to give in to Haudenosaunee demands. Um, and uh, different um, colonies have different views about uh, doing that. And obviously, if you're in um, South Carolina, pretty far away from everything, yeah. Um, you're, you know, you're not as interested in doing it as if you're in New York where you're right there. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And yeah. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. So it's the, the, I think the, for me, you know, and again, this is one of those things that people argue about. Um, you know, I, I would say that, you know, from what I recall, the things that really struck me about this was the Haudenosaunee are clearly being treated with as equal partners and mm -hmm. Have to be taken into consideration, um, and that's just a sign of how people took them as serious people. And there's all kinds of trappings in the way that they met. And if you look at the descriptions of the ceremonies, this is the sort is that there's a whole lot of effort to incorporate um, Haudenosaunee protocol into this. So, in the Haudenosaunee protocol is that is very much focused on getting consensus. And one of the ways that you do that is that everybody socializes and uh does these sort of you know trust building exercises together <laughs> to a frame it's not like you sit across from each other at a table and you wrangle you you have dinner together you make speeches you have dances together and you create this atmosphere in which negotiations can continue and it worked to the <laughs> you know the only problem was that the people who had went to this negotiation didn't have the authority to make the agreement um and yeah. so when to the people who had the authority to make the agreement in the different colonies they hadn't gone to the trust building exercises. They hadn't had the dinners. They hadn't had the uh, the speeches. And they uh, they said, "What the hell? No." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's so interesting. Um, so the uh, the U.S. Constitution, Articles of Confederacy, you know, these documents they eventually get created. Um, what do you think are the main differences between uh, the uh, U.S. Constitution or the Articles of Confederacy, and uh, the, you know, the Great Law of Peace. Um, well, you know the, you know, in a sense, the democratic spirit is the is, is the same. They're both answers to the question, how, you know, attempted answers to the question: How can we make people feel? You know, how can we govern themselves? They both, you know, are in a sense representative. The mm -hmm. uh, the difference is really um, the. You, you know, we have all these formal institutions, you know, votes every four years and, uh, and, and so forth. Um, the Haudenosaunee is much more, you know, a, a much fl more fluid process about achieving consensus. Okay. Uh, and um, what, you know, you don't have formal elections. What happens is that um, somebody says, you know, I, I think Schmedlap is screwing up. I, I think Schmedlap should uh, get out of this job. And everybody agrees, and Schmedlap's out of his job uh, because he can't persuade anybody to do anything. And <laughs> the other thing that there is that's really important is that um, there are sort of separate spheres for men and women. And women have a big role in Haudenosaunee society. And of course, in the Constitution, women, Black people, yeah people who don't own property, lots of people can't vote. So they aren't really citizens. In the Haudenosaunee, anybody who's a Haudenosaunee 
is can is can participate. They participate in different ways if they're men and women, but they participate. Uh, women, very very crudely speaking, women are in charge of you know domestic policy, and men are in charge of foreign policy. I mean, it's mm -hmm. more complicated than that. But uh, and so that is completely absent um, from this. This sort of so you have a in the Constitution much more formal mechanism for registering your opinion. That's the vote. Um, but a much smaller class of people um, are actually allowed to vote. Mm -hmm. And that, you know, definitely changes over time. It, it seems like uh, maybe at that moment, we, uh, at the founding of the U.S., uh, were kind of mixing between the ideas of freedom and the ideas of uh, Europe, which was very monarchical and yeah. uh, hierarchical. And sense, almost, right? yeah. It's a we couldn't just jump into it, but the culture and, and what was the American or what would become the American mindset uh, was one of freedom. And right. uh, so eventually, uh, you know, we buck the tides and the things that were wrong with those uh, systems and those movements, uh, we eventually put in efforts to correct them. Right. You know, very, very slowly. And, uh, you know, we, we, you could say that, uh, you know, with the passage of the 19th Amendment, uh, which women are allowed to vote, and then the Civil Rights Act, um, we're getting closer to the universal franchise that was taken from the beginning from the whole dinner, Shawnee. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we're kind of just continuing to grow closer to the source material. Yeah, yeah, if you, if, if you like. Um, and if that's, you know, I, I think a, a good thing. And you see... Um, you know, that uh, if you include different people, you know, they have different ideas. And so you see that in a different yeah. way men and women vote. Um, and there was, you know, it's, it's interesting. Um, at the same time, there's a difference. And so this, I'll give you an example. Um, I'm going to, in one of the um, Native groups that I, I, I worked with, um, there was a meeting about, um uh, let's see uh, bringing in um uh an an artist um okay. to material outside and this artist had some really fancy modernistic um ideas and did not know how to read the room and for this group as in a number of the native groups um the men were like the front men but the women were the ones who made the the, the decisions. The decisions, yeah. They, they, they did not understand that the most important people, the, the artist people did not understand that the most important people in the room were these elderly women sitting in the back row who looked like they weren't even saying anything. <laughs> and uh, and uh, they presented this thing, and one of the uh, women leaned over and uh, and whispered a couple of words to um, one of the guys, and the guy, the young guy, and that guy then leaned over and whispered a couple words to an older guy. And the older guy said, uh, this doesn't seem very much aligned with our tribe. And that was it. The meeting was over. <laughs> and um, and they, 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 they had no idea. It was clear to, uh, to, to me watching that they had no idea who the powerful people in the, in, 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 in the room were, yeah. how that system worked and who was making the decisions. Came with and, their own preconceived notions. Yeah, right, right. That these guys were the important guys, and so they started arguing with the guys. And the, the fact is, <laughs> 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 yeah, 
<laughs> women over here. And so um, that's a huge difference. And that's something you see actually quite often in uh, North American native groups uh, that the um, women have a really powerful um, role in, in decision-making, even if it isn't necessarily public oration. Um, mm -hmm. You know, and, and, and uh, that is a real difference from the constitution. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So um, just wrapping up here then, uh, the US uh, from a global perspective does eventually become this uh, kind of representation of, of liberty uh, for the next 200 years. And uh, you know, as the uh, French Revolution and, and other uh, mm -hmm. people come to play, um, they kind of use the American Revolution as kind of that uh, first starting ground. Um, in 200 some years later, what do you think, uh, or how do we continue to grow and cultivate that, that essence of liberty? That's a really, um, that's, that's a really good question. Um, so I'm going to throw this out because I hadn't, I hadn't thought about it. Um, and, uh, with the, um, caveat that, um, Maybe this may not make any sense. So I'm going to. That's all right. Right. I mean, one of the striking things to me um, is that there were, um, you know, among the Haudenosaunee and among the Wendat, for that matter, and you know, lots of other other, other groups, you know, Lakota and the um, and, and so forth. You were really free. I mean, the, you know, the, the leaders did not have the right to coerce something. At the uh -huh. same, time, you had um collective obligations to the community uh, so you did have obligations um and you would be you know it's not like you'd be put in jail but you you you'd, you'd be hard pressed to stay a member of the community if you did which was to help out mm -hmm. um you know if uh, if you know uh, somebody broke their leg and couldn't uh, you know do 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 the farming you know you you helped out there was and there's a right. very strong sense of collective responsibility um, for each other's welfare. And that was thought, I think, that you know gave a kind of baseline um, security so that people could experiment and try things on their uh, on on their own. And mm -hmm. um, that that sort of um, need to the sort of responsibility um, to you know to give people the opportunities so that they could freely experiment. Um, it seems to me something that we could really work on. Gotcha. Interesting. So you're saying that uh, to cultivate and grow liberty, we mostly just need to be able to give people the space in which to, uh, you know, find that or yeah, express themselves. So. Right. Yeah. And uh, it's cool. And, uh, you know, if you, um so that if you fail <laughs> you know you know the, the punishment isn't so um isn't so drastic yeah uh, right and so you know somebody can say hey i've got a new type of corn here let me try it out right <laughs> and right uh, right <laughs> well, if it doesn't grow very oh well, i love that i love that example yeah yeah you know that that, that, that like i mean that's the kind of things you, you experiment or you know Hey, I'm going to try, uh, you know, breeding a bunch of 
um, horses. If it doesn't work out, I know that I'll be able to still feed my kids. Um, yeah. 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 And so and if it does work out, then we all benefit. Then we all benefit because I'll give away some of the horses. Yeah. That's a great, great answer. So, okay, cool. Well, last question for you, since it is right. a podcast on U.S. presidents, what uh, what would you say is your favorite U.S. president and why? I mean, I, I think um, I, I think I'm uh, supposed to say Lincoln, um, and my God, the guy he was amazing, um, yeah. <laughs> he was totally amazing. I mean, I'm a writer, and so I mean, that guy could really write. Wow, can <laughs> that guy write? Um, <laughs> um, that's a, you know, and you know, then his sort of cunning and uh, really remarkable guy, um, but. I think my two um, favorite um, presidents are, you know, have to do with my, you know, this is a question that obviously reflects your own personal preferences and things. And one of the things I'm been really struck by is, um, you know, looking around in the world, how rarely it is that people who are revolutionary leaders or leaders in general um, step down. Mm. Uh, you okay. know, look at Look at Africa, you know, look, look, at, look at all these kings who pursued, you know, kept going on. Yeah. Just, like, obviously senile or incompetent or sick or what, what have you, or just people really want to um, hang on to power. And so for me, Washington stepping down when he could have been king, we, we just have, that's, we're so lucky that he did yeah. that. And, and that it would have been normal. It would have been normal. It would have been by world standards. They do this. I mean, look at um, look at you know even in places like China where they have these informal rules. Or look at Xi right now. He's made himself you know king for life there. It's a yeah. real common thing for powerful people to just hang on to it and try to do, do this. And Washington stepping down is amazing. Um, and you know it, it's very hard for me to come up with another example of that. What yeah. an amazing guy to do that. And then you know and then we have people like Martin Van Buren. Who not only stepped down like he was supposed to, but then went and served in a more humble capacity as a member of the House of Representatives and did great. Or, uh, John Quincy Adams. Yeah, it, excuse me, it was John Quincy Adams. I sorry, yeah. I said Mark here. I meant John Quincy Adams. Sorry, um, you're right. And that, that sorry, wrong guy entirely. Thank you. Um, <laughs> wow, no what happens when you are, are just uh, thinking out loud um, is that you say stupid things. Anyway, thank you. Um, yeah, exactly. So that is to me amazing. And uh, when I think of Washington, that's what I'm, I'm just stunned. And I mean, he did lots of things, but that, yeah, by world standards, is incredible. Definitely, awesome answer. So cool. Well, thank you so much for for joining us today, Charles. I think this has been an awesome discussion. Uh, I think that like the uh, listeners really enjoy it. So. Thank you so much again. It's been awesome. Great. Nice to meet you. You as well. As we conclude today's journey through The Origins of Liberty with Charles C. Mann on American Memoirs, we're left with a profound appreciation for the intricate tapestry of the human history and the diverse influences that have shaped our understanding of liberty and governance. Our exploration with Charles C. Mann from the governance of the Haudenosaunee to the foundational principles of the United States underscores the complexity and interconnectedness of human societies. Charles's insights have illuminated the profound impact of pre-Columbian Americas on the European thought and the subsequent birth 
of the Enlightenment ideals. The stories of the Iroquois Confederacy, their democratic principles, and their influence on figures like Benjamin Franklin remind us of the power of diverse perspectives in shaping our world. The intermingling of cultures, the clash of civilizations, and the shared human quest for freedom and dignity have all played their part in the narrative of liberty. As we reflect on the lessons from today's episode, it becomes clear that the essence of liberty, so deeply cherished in American ideals, is not the product of a single culture or moment in time. It is a complex amalgam of ideas and struggles and aspirations that have crossed oceans and transcended cultures. The journey of liberty continues to evolve and we learn from our past and from each other, striving to embody the principles of democracy, equality, and justice in our communities and institutions. Big thanks to Charles C. Mann for his invaluable contributions to our understanding of this journey and for joining us on American Memoirs. To our listeners, we hope today's episode inspires you to delve deeper into the stories that have shaped our world and to contribute to the ongoing dialogue about liberty, justice, and the common good. Thank you for tuning in, and until next time, keep exploring the memoirs of America and the endless stories that define our pursuit of liberty.